So if you will, grab a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 6. We're going to be finishing the chapter this week, finally. See, we're coming to the end of this sermon that Jesus preached, called the the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, Not the Sermon on the Mount, but the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, And as we get here, you might have realized that it's taken us an entire month to preach through what Jesus did in one morning. Uh, Tells you he's a bit more efficient, right? Uh, Anyway, so far in this sermon, just to kind of keep it all in in perspective, Jesus has helped his disciples, those who are professing faith in Christ, they are, uh, he's helping them understand that uh, the the suffering that we go through, that we encounter, that that's a a blessing uh, 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 of God because of our faith. He's also called us to love our enemies and, and to be giving and forgiving rather than judging and condemning. We, we saw that not long ago. And he's taught us to, to make repentance of our own sin a priority before uh, calling anyone else to repentance. And that's what happened just before the section we'll be reading here. And so then I, I want you to, again, just remember that when Jesus is, is preaching this, it, it's not just to everyone, everywhere uh, kind of sermon, but he's directed it specifically to his disciples, specifically to, to people who claim Jesus as their Lord. And, and, and so what he's going to be getting at in, in this portion then is whether those who proclaim Jesus as their Lord, whether, whether they're genuine disciples or, or whether they're merely his disciples in word only. And so the words of Jesus here might scare you a little bit this morning. And if you're not truly following Jesus, that's good. That, that's good because the Lord might intend this passage to, to, to wake you from, from a comfortable slumber. Slumber. And on the other hand, I don't want it to discourage people who are rightly walking with the Lord. And so, you know, even as we begin to read this, I want you to, to, to know that when you hear the word fruit in this first section that we're going to read, I don't want you to hear perfection. Okay, and, and we'll get into more of what that means, but just keep that in mind as we read it. And so uh, we're going to get right into it then. We're going to read it in two portions today. And the first one starting in Luke chapter 6, uh, verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit, by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to receive the words of Jesus we've just read. And we want to receive them and, and not fall into despair, nor to launch into doing works of our own strength in the hope of, of somehow making ourselves into good trees. And so, Lord, we want conviction if conviction is needed. But we ask that this would only serve to draw us closer to you, more dependent upon you, more changed and willing to submit our lives to you, you who are both Sovereign and good. Please stir our hearts now, Lord. Enlighten our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. During our first summer when we moved to Manhattan in 2013, after coming back from a bike ride I'd been out on, uh, I told our children, I said, I I found an apple tree today. And this is them five years ago. But one of them asked, how do you know? So like any good father, I mockingly responded, 
Because it's got apples on it, right? It's this real simple concept that, that Jesus is building off, but just to make sure we fully understand it, let me ask you a few questions about trees, and, and you don't have to have a, a horticulture or whatever tree specialties are actually called um, uh, to answer these, but, but what kind of, well, you can shout this out, what, what kind of tree grows oranges? Nailed it. Well done. What, what kind of tree do you think grows figs, even if you've never seen one? That's right. Um, this one gets a little harder. Can you expect a thorn bush to grow coconuts? No. Y'all are really good at this. It's spring break, so I, you know, make these easy exams at this point. Um, but, but, but you understand then, just by answering those all the way you did, right, what, it, what Jesus is, is pointing out to us here, that, that, that good fruit trees bear good fruit and bad fruit trees only produce bad fruit. Or, or in the way that he's picturing it, right, a thorn bush is not going to have fruit and, and a fruit tree is not going to grow thorns instead of the fruit it's supposed to grow. That, that's why, in fact, none of us, I bet, are, are right now planning on planting thorn bushes in the coming weeks in the hopes that by the end of the summer you're going to be eating fresh, you know, peaches growing off of that. None of you are. You, you know that. And so Jesus is using creation here now to paint this beautiful picture showing us that, that, that we can look at the fruit of our lives and that tells you something about what sort of tree we are, what sort of person we are. And so then if you look at verse 45, do you, do you see the, the thread that runs through each statement there? In, in the first part, we see good, good, good. You see it three times there? If you're the type that underlines, you can underline all three of them just to draw attention to us. The, the good person from the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And then we see that second thread, the same idea with the word evil going the opposite direction, right? The, the evil person from the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. In, in other words, evil is not going to come from a good person who's been given a good heart. Uh, and good will not come from an evil person who still retains an evil heart. Jesus is, is giving us this way for us to evaluate whether we truly received faith and trusted in him. You see, because when God transforms our heart, a work that he does, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we become people who will bear good fruit. Just to make sure we understand what we're talking about, we, we do things like considering others more important than ourselves, as, as Philippians calls us to. Maybe we, we help those in needs. We, we, we take our anxieties that, that come, we, we take them to the Lord in prayer. We, we begin to love our enemies. We're, we're patient when, with someone when there's reason to really be quick to anger, right? We're, we'll see aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, which Paul talks about in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. You know, there he, he gives this list. He says, but, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the fruit of a heart, you know, that's the fruit of a heart that's been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Now, you're likely familiar with that list. And you know, there's also a list of quite the opposite, just two verses before that in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, where Paul gives this list that we might call, you know, the fruit of the thorn bushes, or maybe the fruit of the spiritless um, and, and there Paul writes, the, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, 
impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And neither of those lists are comprehensive, right? But each of them gives a sampling of either the fruit of a genuine disciple of Christ or the fruit of someone who is who's not, regardless of, of what he or she confesses with their lips. You see, the, the only way that an evil heart then becomes a good heart is if God does the work of regeneration in a sinner. It's the only way. It's what Jesus calls in John 3, being born again. And when that happens, and only then, can, can a person have good fruit. It's, it's a, what the Westminster Confession, that's our doctrinal statement, if you're ever wondering to, to go check it out. Uh, but in the Westminster Confession 16.2, it explains it like this. It says, good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of true and lively faith. You always got to make sure you get that order right. Or you're going to mess up the gospel completely because good works are not the means of regeneration. It's not how someone becomes regenerated. But good works are the, the evidence that God has brought about regeneration, that he has given us new hearts, given us faith, that he has filled us with the Holy Spirit. It's, it's like this. If, if God took the oak tree in your front yard and transformed it into an orange tree, when you start seeing oranges growing from the branches in the summer, that would be evidence that, in fact, that really happened. Right? That he didn't just say it happened, but really, it is now an orange tree. And listen, uh, faking it wouldn't make it an orange tree, right? If you go out in your front yard and you start duct taping oranges on there, it's not going to actually turn it into an orange tree. Uh, I'll tell you a story, just because we actually had this almost happen this last summer. Um, we had this vine growing out of our deck. We have no idea how it got there. It looked like uh, pumpkin or watermelon or, or something out of vine like that. And it was right in the middle of our deck in the front yard. And, and Laura didn't love it. So she was like, let's tear it out. And I was like, no, we have to let it grow to find out what it is. Um, and so by the end of July, there was, it was huge. But still, not a single flower on it had turned to any sort of fruit. And, and it left us wondering. And, you know, again, Laura's wanting to pour it out. And I'm like, no, give it a few more weeks. Something's going to grow on it, I promise you. It was an empty promise, to be sure. Uh, and so a few weeks later, and still nothing. And, and so while Laura's away one morning, the kids and I drive, over down, drive down to A&H Farm, and, and we find the guys out in the field, and we're like, can we, just, can we have a watermelon that still has the vine on it because we're trying to trick our mother? And he's like, sure. No more questions asked. Uh, so anyway, we go back, and we, and we tuck it into the deck right next to it, so it looks like this watermelon has now grown out of this thing. And, and, and we wait for Laura to come home. We just sit out there just thinking, we just want to see her reaction. She didn't believe it for a second. Not one second. I guess when you go from nothing to a huge watermelon, it, it, it's not real convincing. Um, so, so she figured it out real quick, but our neighbors didn't figure it out real quick. They were like, wow, you grew a pumpkin on your front deck. We, we'd faked them for a bit. And here's the deal. It, it is easy to fake spiritual fruit for a little while. But, but eventually, you know, just like even our neighbors realize this is not a real watermelon. Look at the vines dying on it. And, and you know, they come and talk about it. And, and before they knew it, they knew it. This is a bad vine. I still to this day don't know what's wrong with it, but I know it was a bad vine because nothing ever came from it. And, and so Jesus further then explains this idea by, by, by saying at the end of verse 45, right? He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. 
See, Jesus is showing us that the words that come out of our mouth that we speak, that that's one of the strongest empirical, one of the, one of the most observable ways of evidence of whether we are redeemed disciples of Jesus Christ. And don't think that's about cultural cuss words. Right? This is about how we, you know, do we speak evil of others? Are we bitter at God and speak that because of the providence of God? Do we use our words to tear other people down or to gossip or to just complain incessantly? Let me ask it this way. What do your words testify regarding your own heart? If you take that question serious, I promise you it is convicting. What would my words testify about my heart? Because our, our words, along with our actions, these are the fruits of our hearts. And when the fruit of our, our lives is good, it shows gratitude to the Lord for everything that He's done to us. When the fruit is good, it edifies the body of Christ. It edifies the, the, the church, the, the good fruit of our lives. It beautifies the gospel wherever we go. It, you know, and it silences critics of Christianity, critics of our Lord. And it brings glory to our glorious God. So now I, I want to be careful, though, again, to not unnecessarily discourage you today. J.C. Ryle on this passage, he says, Let it be a settled principle in our religion, Christianity, that when, good, uh, when people show no fruit of the Spirit, they do not have the Holy Spirit within them. Now, now, the thing I want you to notice there is the concern is when there is no good fruit of the Spirit in our lives. In other words, Jesus is not here teaching that if your faith is genuine, that you're never going to say or do something wrong. You will say things wrong. You will do things wrong. You will commit sin. But do you recognize it as sin? And tying into the section we just left last week, right? Do you, do you repent of sin as sin? And remember, right, trees produce different amounts of fruit depending upon the season, depending upon their maturity, depending upon the weather. But, but a, good, a good tree will bear fruit. And so remember then, you know, sanctification is a slow process. It's a slow change from, from novel pleasures to godly pleasures. It's a slow transition from loving sin to, to hating sin. It's a, a slow transition from just loving self to loving the Lord and loving our, our neighbors. You see, people will at times uh, tell me about their ongoing struggle with sin. And, and it, they'll, they'll come and they'll be frustrated at themselves, right? Because I keep losing my temper. I don't mean to, but I do. I keep finding myself yelling. Or, or they're upset at themselves for, for chasing after lust in a moment of weakness. Or because they, they gossip despite the fact that they had these incredibly strong intentions entering into a situation to not do so. And they're so disappointed. And I, and I see these brothers and sisters in Christ and I'm just encouraged by their own frustration because apathy is a bad fruit. Indifference is the treasure of a, of a, 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 a bad heart. But a broken and contrite heart Words of repentance, a desire for godly obedience, that is good fruit. And, and thus, evidence that the Holy Spirit has made a home in them. There's great encouragement in that. And to be encouraged further. So then we're going to move on from here. I want you to look back at your Bibles. We're going to read the last words of Jesus in his sermon. This is how he finishes it. Um, and again, he's speaking to those who are professing to be disciples of his, who have said so. 
Uh, starting in verse 46, here he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of the house was great. That word, Lord, you probably know, but it means master. It means ruler. And, and so to call Jesus Lord is to say that, that you recognize his place of authority over you and, and that he should be obeyed. To use the word twice, like the way Jesus uses it here, it, it communicates this, this intense allegiance to him, right? Your words are being said strongly. And, and his point is that the, the real evidence of, of our discipleship is submitting our lives under Jesus' reign and rule. It, it's like saying, uh, why do you call me wife and, and not love me faithfully? Something like that. You see, because he's pushing us to this question, he's pushing us to ask this idea, right? Are, are you calling me by name? This is as if Jesus is saying this. Are you calling me by a name that doesn't match how you actually relate to me? And, and you and I might ask ourselves, right? What, what, what would I call Jesus? What name would I refer to Jesus by if it was just based on the way I actually relate to him? Would you call Jesus fire insurance? Would it, would it just be a blank space of, of unknown? I don't really know how I relate to you. Would it be, Jesus, you're my, you're my Sunday morning Lord, but only Sunday morning Lord? Or, or, or might we be the ones that show up and say, advisor, advisor? You know, what, what, what would we call him? The, the, the bottom line is we, we cannot call Jesus Lord and then live as though he has no authority over us. And so Jesus is showing us that the evidence of being our Lord, that it's found in the obedience of our lives, not merely saying, but, but doing. It's what James 1.22 gets out when it says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And this whole idea, right, in the second section is carrying over from the tree passage just before this. You, you probably already noticed this, but you can see it more specifically. In, in verse 43, look at that. You see that word bears? No good tree bears bad fruit. And again, when Jesus says a bad tree doesn't bear good fruit, that, that word bear right there is, is the same Greek word, poio, uh, that we see here in verse 40, 46. Only here it's translated quite literally just to do, right? What, what do trees do? They bear fruit. And, and so it's getting to this, what do you do? Why, why, uh, <clears throat> why do you, right, not do what I tell you is what he's saying. But bearing fruit and doing what Jesus commands, these are evidences that our hearts are under the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so then, <clears throat> how we relate to sinful things, how we relate to things like lust and gossip and stealing and hatred of our brothers and sisters, and on the other side of the spectrum, how we live out Jesus' words like loving our neighbors or showing hospitality or encouraging others, those things tell us if Jesus is our advisor, advisor, or if he is truly our Lord, Lord. 
There's this, this wonderful, famous experiment that was conducted years ago on unsuspecting seminary students. And it, and it goes like this. Uh, it's based on the story of the Good Samaritan, which we'll see in Luke 10 uh, and a bit later. But uh, just to refresh you on that, in the story of the Good Samaritan, uh, a criminal beats a man. And he leaves him there injured and hurt. And, and then a, a priest goes by and does nothing to help him. Actually goes out of his way to avoid him. And, and a Levite sees him and, and walks right past him and does nothing to help him. But a, a Samaritan, the, the least likely because of the cultural divide between these people, the least likely has compassion on this victim. And he stops and he goes out of the way to care for this injured man. And, and so the experiment that's, that's done on these seminary students is set up like this. They, they ask him, come on in and we want you to tell us about the story of the good Samaritan. What's it mean? How do you live this? Things of that nature. Only they set it up that the only way to get to this place where they had to, give the, had to teach was to enter through a door where, where there was a man uh, slumped over on the ground, clearly injured, who would cough twice as the students approached to make sure they couldn't possibly miss him. And the great irony, as you probably already suspected, is that the majority of these students who were on their way to tell the story from God's word about the Good Samaritan and, and what this means for our life, stepped past this guy, went around this guy, avoided this guy, offered absolutely no help, even while they're on their way to teach about this exact situation. There was this huge disconnect between the knowledge of Jesus' teaching and the practice of Jesus' teaching. And you see, I, I'll say this, one of the, the struggles that we have in obeying God's word is that we, we, we just fail to settle in our hearts that Jesus really is an authority over us. Uh, not long ago, Laura and I were having a, a conversation talking about this, and we were just saying how, how easy our life as Christians could be if we just made a simple commitment to obey the Lord because he is our Lord. I know that sounds a bit simplistic, Right? But, but, but all too often, the way as, as we function as Christians is that we hear a command in Scripture, and, and, then, and then we consider, right, the, the reason for God calling us to do that. Well, what might God's reason for that be, uh, telling us to do that or forbidding us from doing something? And, and then we decide how we're going to obey it. For example, uh, uh, I'll give you one that's always stuck with me. When I was a teenager, every time someone taught that sex was reserved for a man and a woman within the commitment of marriage. Every time it was discussed, there was this litany of results-based reasons given trying to convince us to commit to obedience in this, right? Uh, and so you'd hear it from Scripture, but then there'd be something like, well, God wants to protect you from STDs, or he wants to keep you from suffering emotional pain or uh, pregnancy at an inopportune time. And there'd be all these reasons that were given for why God might have had this restriction, and so then as teenagers, here we are, you know, what we're learning, though, is we're thinking through whether these are valid reasons uh, for God to actually call us to do this. And if they were valid reasons, then we'd be, you know, maybe we make a commitment to obey this. And if they weren't, then everything's up for grabs kind of idea. In other words, we, we, were, we were in the seat of authority, and the commandments of Jesus had then been presented as an argument or advice to be considered. I, I can't be the only one who had it taught this way. But how, how crazy is that? Seriously, when did, because God who created me says so, stop being a compelling reason to obey the Lord? Christian, listen, sin is wrong not because of what it does to me. It's wrong not because of what it does to my spouse or my child or, or my neighbor or my classwork or my coworker or anyone else, but rather because it is a blatant act of rebellion against our infinitely holy and gloriously majestic God. That's why sin is sin. 
See, what's missing in all this is the reality that all of our life as Christians should be lived under the authority of God, under the reign of Jesus Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we live. So then Jesus, again, paints this picture, right? These two different people. A person who knows Jesus as their Lord and a person who just knows about Jesus. And he does it by contrasting these, these two home builders, right? The, the way they do it. One, one house stands and the man is brought safely through a terrible storm and the other house is destroyed completely. I don't know if you notice, but Jesus gives no third option. There is no option for just you know, a little bit of damage and carry on. The, the story illustrates what each man is like. Okay, Notice that. What each man is like, not what they've earned, but how their life is because of those three characteristics that are listed afterward. And so I want you to look at verses 47 and 49 where we see those three characteristics of these two men. Uh, the first one, right, is the person who comes to Jesus. They approach him, learn about him, they see him. Uh, both of these men come to Jesus. And the second characteristic is the person who hears Jesus' words. And both of these men hear Jesus' words. The only variable is that third characteristic, and this is where their paths absolutely split and go in different directions. One man obeys Jesus' words, he does them, um, and the other one does not. And so the, the man or woman or child who truly comes to Jesus, hears his words and obeys, they're, they're secure. Those three things give assurance that their souls are safe. Jesus then gives an alternate illustration going the opposite direction, right? For, for the man or the woman or the child who has heard his words, maybe even agree with them, but who, who does not do them, they have no like, authority in his life. That person is like a house with no foundation, such that it is swept away when, when disaster, when, when, when the storms come. That, that's the sort of half-heartedly following Jesus, and it comes with no assurance that you're really safe in that house. The house only seems safe, right? So long as no storms enter your life. I don't want to make any judgments on anyone individually, but you, you probably have seen this in your own life looking out, right? You've known people who at some point in their life, they were interested in Jesus. They were interested in the scriptures and, and Christianity. It seemed like something that might make their life a little better or interesting or, you know, whatever it might be. But, but then their, their marriage falls apart despite their own faithfulness. Or the gushing waters of an unexpected death of a friend just blows it away. A, a false teaching comes with hurricane-like strength against their faith. Or an ethical temptation appeals to their flesh. Or an emotional or physical attack just washes the foundation out from under their feet and they just walk away. And it leaves you wondering if they ever really believed the gospel to begin with. And you know the answer to that. I've seen this happen too often. And every time it's incredibly housebreaking or heartbreaking. It, it is just heartbreaking to see the house of someone's life or someone's soul rather wash away in the torrents of suffering and flooding in their life. You know, the, the, the faith that you have, the, the faith that God is building up in you, that, that's what's going to get you through the struggles and the suffering of life. So the bottom line is the, the kind of faith that sees Jesus as Lord and sincerely seeks to obey him is the kind of faith that gives rock-solid assurance of our salvation. It's the kind of faith that gives us hope when everything else around us begins to crumble. 
And again, I, I'm not, you know, th- th- this is not saying be good and you're saved. I can't say that enough. It's not saying that, right? He, he's saying that if you're finding that more and more you hate sin, if you're finding that more and more you love what God has called good, then, then you should have full assurance that your faith and your soul will be fine no matter what storms come into your life. Any of them. The whole point is your salvation or your foundation is solid. Now, a few more things will be done here. First, we don't drift into obedience. We just don't. Right? It's not an easy thing. In Jesus' story, we see this man dig down deep to the foundation. Right? He's pointing something out that actually takes much more effort than the man who simply just built his house right on the ground as he found it. Obedience isn't easy. It's not. It's labor. It's self-denial. It's pushing against pride and self-righteousness. It's the hard efforts of killing habitual sin that, that just seems so natural to our flesh that why in the world would you kill it? It's, it's the difficult task of that. It's persevering through persecution. It's reading and studying and applying God's word. That's the hard work that digs down deep to the rock-solid foundation, Right? And truly applying God's word, that is so vital in an area that we miss so easily because it takes work. Uh, Jerry Bridges once said, One of the banes of present-day evangelical Christianity is the way that we sit every week under the preaching of God's word or even have private devotions and perhaps participate in a Bible study without a serious intent to obey the truth that we learn. Brothers and sisters, it is sinful and detrimental to your soul to sit under the teaching of God's word and never apply it. To just give you ideas. See, we need to be applying God's word to our lives. And and often, and I want you to understand, it's not just in huge ways. It's going to be little things, right? Like be more patient with that friend who's just annoying. Asking forgiveness for someone that you've sinned against. And it's awkward probably to ask forgiveness for It's actively thinking how you might write or you might speak a a word of encouragement to somebody else. But it's applying the things we learn. Last thing will be done. If if you've asked yourself up to this point, right? This is where I found myself. Where's the grace? This all just sounds like a bunch of works, right? I hope you haven't gotten that. but, But if you did, let me hear me out. This is not about trying harder. Yeah, you said that. Yeah, but I want to make sure you understand that. It's not about trying harder. Jesus' whole point is that if you're not seeing good fruit in your life, if you're not seeking to obey Jesus, the solution isn't produce fruit. The the solution isn't will yourself to obedience by by your own power, but rather the solution is, is come to Jesus. Truly, truly come to Jesus because you haven't yet. But the call of Jesus in that, that, that's the grace. Not be fruitful, but but come to Jesus. Truly come to Jesus. And he will make you fruitful. Come to Jesus and trust him. Be be satisfied in him. As as 1 Peter 3.15 teaches, right? That that to set Jesus apart as the Lord of your life. The treasure of your heart. Do you notice one more thing here? I know I already told you that. I must have lied. I didn't mean to. Um... You notice in verse 48, I want you to look at it, really. If you have it out, look at it. You need to see this. Um, when Jesus says to build our lives on a firm foundation, 
He doesn't say on a rock. There's not options for, for lots of things, right? Don't just go find a rock. He says to do so on the rock. The rock. He's talking about himself, of course. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.11 you know, further defines this for us when, when he says, uh, writes, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You're not just digging to find a foundation. You're you're digging down where the foundation is Christ. And so with Jesus' teaching here, we we evaluate our hearts, yes, and we we turn to Jesus with a faith that permeates the entirety of our lives. So so, So then we begin to dig. We begin to dig down deeper and to build our lives upon the solid rock that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And on that foundation, that's a place we can rest. That, that's a place, even as the storms come around us, there's no reason to panic. We, we can actually rest, fully assured that no matter what storms might come, we're safe in the arms of, of our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, we want to use those words when we speak to you in prayer. And we want to mean them. And so we ask that you give us eyes to see whoever else and whatever else we may have submitted ourselves under. We ask that you would draw our hearts to you. That more and more we would desire to obey your words, even when it's hard, even when it's painful, even when it might make life harder. We ask that more and more we would seek to obey you even when we feel a desire for something contrary to your word. Be our Savior, be our Lord, grant us salvation and sanctification. For the glory of your name and for the joy of our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.